Today on Golden Girls Sports, a president, a football innovator, and a Hollywood legend all take a back seat to the once and future first lady of television, Betty White. Marcus Allen. Mike Tyson. Extra innings. The tight end decoys, so it looks like we're running a draw play. Magic Johnson. Bobby O. Tampa Bay Bucks. And they're off! The pig takes the lead. The chicken. Blind Date premiered on January 28, 1989, the 12th episode of the show's fourth season. It was written by Christopher Lloyd and directed by Terry Hughes. If that title sounds familiar, it's because a Mike Tyson joke from its opening scene was mentioned in our first episode. While the A story of Blind Date focuses on Blanche's anxiety over dating a blind man, played by veteran TV character actor Ed Winter, we're going to stick with the B story, in which Rose coaches a sad sack youth football team that's winless on the season. Needing help to whip these sorry kids into shape, Rose enlists Dorothy as her assistant coach. At first, Dorothy isn't interested because of Rose's often out-of-control competitiveness, but a promise to do it for the kids changes her mind. Dorothy, I just had a great idea. Why don't you become my assistant? Oh, Rose, forget it, forget it. I don't want to get involved in sports with you. No, Rose, you're too competitive. You just take all the fun out of it. Oh, not anymore, Dorothy, really. Believe me, all I care about is that these kids have a really good time. Well, all right. I mean, if you really mean it, you can count me in. Oh, great. <laughs> Oh, with your help, Dorothy, we'll kick their butts. We'll chew them up and spit them out. We'll make them eat dirt for breakfast. (laughs) Because breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Later in the week, an important player named Billy can't make weight, even with the sneaky Rose hiding a thick book under his jersey. This puts Dorothy and Rose at odds again over the lessons they're each trying to teach the team. The tension continues into a strategy session. Now, the tight end decoys, so it looks like we're running a draw play, and then he slips into a soft spot in the zone over the middle. The flanker fakes a screen, then runs a reverse behind the halfback, which gives the quarterback two options. For God's sake, Rose, Eisenhower used less chalk planning (laughs) D-Day. Rose and Dorothy might not agree on coaching, but both start to feel ill. Sure enough, it's the flu, because no one caught the flu in Miami more often than the Golden Girls did. When it's clear that they can't coach the team's upcoming game, Sophia steps in and takes over on the sidelines. In the locker room before the game, Sophia gives a pep talk to the whole team and teaches Billy that being small can be good, even if it means you can't play sometimes. You're upset because you can't play, aren't you? Still could, if you let me. Aren't you still two pounds below the limit? Yeah, boy, I hate being small. Hey, being small isn't all bad. Take it from someone who knows. You mean you? You see Billy Barty sitting here? (laughs) She finishes the heart-to-heart by giving Billy a huge submarine sandwich, hoping it'll raise his weight so he can actually hit the field. We cut back to the house where Sophia and the kids return victorious. Yes, Billy played, but that big sandwich gave him a cramp, so he was pulled from the game anyway. Turns out the key to winning was an old Sicilian football play Sophia taught them called the Statue of Mussolini. What's that? Everybody piles on the star quarterback on the first play, and then he's out of the rest of the game. (laughs) Ma, Ma, that is a 
mean, underhanded, despicable thing to do. So was World War II. We're talking about Mussolini. <laughs> Even as a side story, there's a lot to unpack here. Rose's competitive nature, and her Viking temper, as Betty White called it, is an important aspect of her personality, which was usually warm-hearted and kind. Christopher Lloyd, who wrote the script for this episode, and who is not the same Christopher Lloyd from Taxi and Back to the Future, said that bringing out Rose's competitive juices was something they tried to do as often as they could on the show. Quote, It's such a contrast to the other more innocent parts of her character. Admittedly, it's strange that these older women would be coaching a kid's team. We could have shown her getting competitive by playing tennis with Dorothy, but it wouldn't have been as funny as showing Betty surrounded by these little kids who come up to her waist and yet berating them like she's Vince Lombardi. End quote. In 2015, Spencer Hall of SB Nation and the creator of the long-running college football blog Every Day Should Be Saturday broke down Rose's strategies in this episode and decided that she's either completely clueless or a true football innovator. Quote, Rose may have done something here. There's several run options built in here with a full wishbone backfield. There's play action and motion to show keys and a fake screen that could become a very real one with the right blocking. And y'all, we think Rose may have invented the package play two decades before it became common. End quote. In her talk with Billy, Sophia mentions Billy Barty, the three foot nine inch tall actor whose career spanned from 1927 to 2000 the year of his death at 76. A few of his many credits include The Spike Jones Show, Peter Gunn, the Elvis Presley movie Harem Scarum, Sigmund and the Sea Monsters, The Happy Hooker Goes to Washington, Willow, and The Golden Girls, where he played a hallucination of Rose's father in a dream sequence in season one's A Little Romance. Despite being shorter than four feet tall, Barty has an extensive athletic history. He played football and basketball at Los Angeles City College and at L.A. State, coached Little League, and even played semi-pro baseball with the hope of becoming either a sports writer or a coach. Dorothy might compare Rose's football strategy to General Dwight Eisenhower's strategy for invading Normandy, but the future president's sports career veered more towards baseball. Between graduating Abilene High School in Kansas and attending the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, Eisenhower played minor league baseball for the Junction City Soldiers of the Central Kansas League. Using the pseudonym of Wilson, Ike hit 331 and 31 at-bats over nine games for the Soldiers in the summer of 1909. He was forced to keep this a secret for years because playing professionally should have disqualified him from playing either baseball or football at West Point. But a knee injury derailed his athletic career, and after his decisive military victories in World War II, Eisenhower would sometimes spill the beans on his little baseball adventure and confirm the rumors. When asked by a Brooklyn Dodgers PR man about the two Wilsons that played in the Central Kansas League that year, Eisenhower allegedly said his Wilson was the one who could hit. Okay, one more. Sophia's Statue of Mussolini play is a twist on the old Statue of Liberty play, a trick play first devised by immortal football coach and innovator Amos Alonzo Stagg. Invented in 1908 at the University of Chicago, the play involves a quarterback faking a pass and keeping his arm in the air, while handing the ball off behind his back to either a running back or a wide receiver. The play is still used today, and Boise State loves it. They used it to score a two-point conversion in overtime to win the 2007 Fiesta Bowl over Oklahoma State. Stagg was a true visionary, and also invented the lateral pass, the reverse, the onside kick, uniform numbers, and the tackling dummy, 
while also coaching basketball, swimming, and track. Amos Alonzo Stagg coached football forever. Betty White has been on television forever. And in the process, she's been a trailblazer, a role model, and a comforting presence for generations of viewers. A word of forewarning. This won't be a complete, absolute encapsulation of the life and career of Betty White. To do so would be to summarize the entire history of television, from its humble local beginnings as a fad that was destined to fail, to that eternal friend none of us can live without. For almost 80 years, Betty White has seen it all and done it all. So we'll spend just a few minutes highlighting some of the most interesting, and in some cases, historical moments of a life spent on screen. Betty Marion White was born on January 17, 1922, the only child of Tess and Horace White. Betty grew up in Southern California as TV was taking off and studios began popping up all over the place. In fact, one house she lived in as a child was located just a few blocks from where she'd shoot the Golden Girls decades later. Betty's parents installed in their daughter a love of the outdoors and especially of animals that she would keep throughout her life. White says she was the only kid whose parents would come home with a stray pet asking their kid, can we keep her? Betty graduated from the famous Beverly Hills High School in 1939 and a few weeks later got her first glimpse of television exposure in a production of the operetta The Merry Widow in a local downtown Los Angeles broadcast from the Packard Building. Although that might have been when the acting bug first bit her, Betty's next few years included driving a PX truck around military bases and gun emplacements for the American Women's Voluntary Services during World War II. While with the wartime organization, she met and married her first husband, Dick Barker, but the pair divorced after just six months in 1945. That same year, she joined an acting school for a tuition of $50 a month and did stage productions of Spring Dance and Dear Ruth. While performing in the shows, Betty met agent Lane Allen, who would become her second husband. She finally broke into radio and received her coveted union card thanks to Margarine and sang Parquet during two daily broadcasts of the comedy show The Great Gildersleeve. A lot of us grew up seeing Betty White on game shows throughout the 70s and 80s, but her introduction to the medium actually happened in 1949. While as a pop-up girl on the Tom, Dick, and Harry TV show, Betty worked her first game show called Grab Your Phone. This would be the first of a lifetime of game show appearances, one even leading to a marriage a few decades later. Around this time, Betty got a call from L.A. disc jockey Al Jarvis to be his gal Friday on a new show called Hollywood on Television. She would be paid $50 a week to do songs, skits, banter, and whatever, five hours a day, every day of the week, live. She would jump at the job, but that schedule would only get more crazy as the years went on. But Betty's husband, Lane, wanted to have a family and was not happy that she wanted a career. I knew that I wasn't, I wasn't going to be content to just stay home, and I knew that a career was very much in my future, and he wanted me to, he was a little, there was a little jealousy. So finally I said no, and he, he wanted to have a family, naturally. If I did have a baby, that baby would have to be the, the whole thing for me. Uh, and I wasn't, that's not my field of expertise, so I, I decided not to have children. And in those days, people didn't understand that as readily as they do now. Betty and Lane Allen divorced, but her chemistry with Al Jarvis and the HOT crew grew more and more. Eventually, the show was extended by a half hour, plus five and a half hours on Saturdays, too. A Sunday show? Sure, why not? 
The first edition of The Betty White Show premiered in 1951 with her reading romance letters from viewers, accompanied by pianist George Tibbles, who would add his music and creative talents to her show for years. After Jarvis and his immediate replacement Eddie Albert left Hollywood on television, Betty was named host, leading to her first starring TV series and a spinoff of the show. Life with Elizabeth was based on Alvin and Elizabeth sketches from H.O.T., and it was unique in that it included three short comedic situations per episode. Each sketch opened with Elizabeth having a conversation with a narrator only she could talk to. Betty White in Life with Elizabeth, featuring Del Moore. The show also made Betty one of the first female television producers in Hollywood. She would host Hollywood on television every weekday, rehearse Life with Elizabeth with co-star Del Moore on Fridays, then run through and shoot the episodes on Saturdays. By the way, one of the stagehands for Hollywood on television at the time was Sam Peckinpah, who would go on to become one of the legendary action movie directors of all time for films like The Wild Bunch and Straw Dogs. Even this early in her career, Betty White was named Honorary Mayor of Hollywood. But all this work had been local. She finally went national in 1954 with the second iteration of The Betty White Show, a musical daytime variety show like Hollywood on television, only it would be a half hour long instead of five and a half hours. That show was a hit in the beginning, until a couple of time change flip-flops wrecked its audience. Losing a second namesake TV show didn't slow her down, though. In 1955, Betty did her first of 20 years of Tournament of Roses parade broadcasts. Each one brought its own challenges, with at least one being called from a basement in a remote location on monitors. After Life with Elizabeth ended, Betty had another sitcom called Date with the Angels in 1957. She played Vicky Angel with her TV husband Gus, played by Bill Williams, although they didn't share the same rapport she had with Del Moore. That show was renamed The Betty White Show, that's the third one if you're keeping count, and the format was changed to be more like the segmented Life with Elizabeth. Moore was even brought back but the show eventually ended as well. For the first time in years, Betty had no regular shows to work on, but she kept very busy by guesting on and guest hosting The Tonight Show for Jack Parr and doing tons of game shows created by her friends Merv Griffin and Mark Goodson. She also starred in a summer theater run of The King and I, the first of eight productions of the show she would do. In 1961, a game show called Password premiered and would have a major effect on Betty's life. After being a celebrity guest on the show, she and host Alan Ludden would be co-stars in a main summer stage production of a play called Critics' Choice. From this moment, a marriage and partnership was born that would last 18 years until Ludden's death of stomach cancer. got married to Alan Ludden in 1963. After a year's courtship, a year of me being silly enough to keep saying no. Betty not only became Alan's wife, but also stepmother to his three teenage children. It took a lot of adjusting on all sides. Their mother was dead. She had died. And uh, so he'd tell the kids, no, you can't do something. They'd come, well, then they'd come to me. And I heard no from him. Well, no in my house, it always meant they didn't use the word unless it was, when they said no, you just, the argument was over. So I'd say, no, your dad said absolutely not. Well, then they'd go back to him and he'd say, well, okay, if you want to do that. That's a tough thing to live with. It took a little adjusting in that department. They would split their time between California and Westchester, New York, 
while doing plays together, and with Betty appearing on even more game shows like To Tell the Truth, I've Got a Secret, What's My Line, Liars Club, Match Game, and naturally, Password. Well, I figure I'll let Jack get a couple. It makes him feel better and everything, you know. <laughs> I'm going to pay for that in blood. <laughs> yes, Betty and Jack, they're the old friends. As they look at it, you look at it. The password is sorry. Okay, Betty, 10 points. Apologize. Apologize, huh? Sorry? Yes! Betty has had a few cracks at hosting her own game show, but none were hits, and in most cases, through no fault of her own, the shows fell apart. In 1964, she worked with Mark Goodson on a show called Get the Message, which ABC liked and bought at first sight. Thing is, they wanted a male host, so Betty was out. It went through two guys before being canceled in a matter of months. Nine years later, she shot a pilot for a show called Hollywood's Talking for producer Jack Barry, who had been the host of 21 when that show went through its scandals in the 1950s. With networks still leery of a female-led game show, a second pilot for Hollywood's Talking was shot with a male host, Al Lohman. Guess what? The network passed on both versions. Finally, in 1983, she hosted Just Men, formerly known as Studs, for NBC. It involved celebrity men, including Tommy Lasorda, George Brett, Mr. T, and others, answering questions from lady contestants hoping to win a car. The show shot a week's worth of episodes in one day, and Betty loved the banter and ad-libbing between her and the guests, which would reach a wild, frenzied peak by the time that final show taped. Unfortunately, network executive Grant Tinker, Alan Ludden's best friend and former husband of Mary Tyler Moore, was homesick one week, watched an episode, and hated it, canceling Just Men after 13 episodes. Betty got the last laugh, though, winning a daytime Emmy for her work on the show. In 1970, Betty debuted her uh, pet project, The Pet Set, a talk show in which guests and celebrities brought their beloved animals to chat. Visitors included Jimmy Stewart, James Brolin, Lauren Green, Mary Tyler Moore, Doris Day, and Burt Reynolds. And not just dogs and cats either. Horses, tigers, wolves, you name it, all were welcome. The Pet Set aired for 39 episodes and was syndicated in over 100 cities. A few years later, after returning from a trip to Ireland, Betty got a call from Mary Tyler Moore Show co-creator Alan Burns to play the character of Sue Ann Nivens in the show's upcoming fourth season. Sue Ann may have been the happy homemaker to the people of Minneapolis, but to her co-workers at WJM, she was a vain, man-hungry, backstabbing pain in the ass. Legend has it that the part was written for, quote, a Betty White type. But producers avoided bringing the genuine article in because they didn't want to jeopardize the real Betty's long friendship with Mary Tyler Moore. After auditioning about 10 actresses, casting director Renee Valenti said, since the part was just for one episode, why not call Betty White? That one episode was so successful that it led to four seasons on the show and Betty's first primetime Emmy win in 1975. She won again a year later and was nominated a third time in Mary Tyler Moore's final season. When Moore chose to end the show with her name on it after seven groundbreaking seasons, Betty moved on to The Betty White Show, Mark IV, in which White played actress Joyce Whitman, the star of the lame cop romp Undercover Woman. The original idea was for the show within the show to be a sci-fi adventure like Star Trek, which Betty has been a fan of since its original run. But changes were made in the show, which co-starred a pre-magnum P.I. John Hillerman as Joyce's ex-husband, only lasted 14 episodes. 
The next years were filled with more game shows and stage musicals and TV movies and love boat guest shots. The work allowed Betty to get past the pain of Ludden's death, which happened two days before their 18th wedding anniversary in 1981. Betty has never remarried. When Mama's family came about in 1983, by bringing Vicki Lawrence's character back from the dead after her funeral in The Carol Burnett Show, Betty reprised her character of Ellen, Thelma's uppity daughter, which she had played on the original show. Also on Mama's family was Rue McClanahan, who played Thelma's flustered live-in sister and friend. The first two seasons aired on NBC before it was canceled and brought back into syndication in 1986 without either Ellen or Anne Fran. But by then, both ladies had moved to Miami and become Golden Girls. Before the show even shot its seminal pilot episode, an important play took place. Originally, Betty was set to play Blanche and McClanahan was to play Rose, essentially recreating their roles of Sue Ann Nivens and Vivian, McClanahan's ditzy character on Maud. But director Jay Sandrich, who had worked with Betty previously on Mary Tyler Moore, suggested they switch parts. And boom, TV history was made. Betty admits that McClanahan took the role of Blanche further than she ever could have, and said that Sandrich's direction helped her find the key to playing Rose. Quote, She's not dumb, just totally naive, Betty recalls Sandrich saying. She believes everything she is told, and in her innocence, always takes the first meaning of every word. End quote. White played Rose Nyland with often literal wide-eyed optimism and a childlike outlook on the world. By not understanding sarcasm, the insults of others never bothered Rose, and Betty was able to find the comedy and the humanity in the character. It was the character switch that also convinced Beatrice Arthur to sign on. Ironically, the pilot script called for Dorothy to be played by a quote B. Arthur type, recalling Betty's introduction to the Mary Tyler Moore show. Only this time, Arthur wasn't interested in what she called Sue Ann Nivens meets Maud and Vivian. But once McClanahan explained who was who and the possibilities each had, Arthur finally bought in and the team was complete. Arthur and White's relationship has been the subject of a lot of questions over the years. White told Joy Behar on CNN in 2011 that B was not that fond of her. Quote, I don't know what I ever did, but she was not that thrilled with me. But I loved B and I admired her. End quote. But in her book, my first five husbands and the ones that got away, Rue McClanahan said that despite any disagreements they may have had as performers or people, Arthur refused to go to lunch without White by her side for years. It seems as if they were two professionals that had different ways of working and different outlooks on life. In real life, White isn't anything like Rose, except for an infectious positivity and ability to roll with whatever life throws at her. Arthur, known for playing very forceful, assertive characters like Maud Finley and Dorothy's Bornack, could be a shy homebody and an insecure artist. In rehearsals, Betty would be off-book or have her lines memorized seemingly overnight, while B worked at a more deliberate pace. Director Jim Drake recalls hearing Arthur telling White that being off-book so early made the rest of the actors feel bad. Whatever their feelings about each other, that cast made magic together, with all four principal actresses winning primetime Emmys in succession. Betty was the first of them to win, taking home Outstanding Lead Actress in a Comedy Series in 1986, with her co-stars all nominated that year as well. When Arthur chose to step away from the show after the seventh season, White, McClanahan, and Estelle Getty all moved into the Golden Palace. Rose, Blanche, and Sophia opened up a hotel full of wacky guests and staff, played by Cheech Marin and Don Cheadle. So if you were looking for a connection between the Golden Girls and the Marvel Universe, War Machine is your guy. By White's own admission, the Golden Palace wasn't a grabber, 
and the move to CBS and the many last-minute rewrites made the show's takeoff a rough one compared to its well-oiled predecessor. Despite positive feelings towards the end of the first season, it was not picked up for a second. Entering the 21st century, there was still no stopping Betty White. She played the role of Secretary Catherine Piper on David E. Kelly's The Practice and Boston Legal between 2004 and 2008. She did 124 episodes of Hot in Cleveland, another show she was supposed to only be a guest on before her irascible Elka was added to the principal cast during the first season. She hosted her own candid camera-style prank show called Betty White's Off Their Rockers between 2012 and 2014. She's still raking in Emmy nominations, too, and even won a damn Grammy at 90 years old for an audiobook reading of her own book in 2012. She also branched out into feature films like Lake Placid, The Lorax, and The Proposal, and even did voice work on cartoons like The Wild Thornberries, Higley Town Heroes, Pound Puppies, and The Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy. You just appeared. You have no idea how you arrived here. No, do you? Ma'am, your husband burned. You didn't by any chance lead him to the lake blindfolded. If I had a dick, this is where I'd tell you to suck it. And then there are the guest shots on That 70s Show, Malcolm in the Middle, Community, 30 Rock, and The Bold and the Beautiful. At 88, she became the oldest person to host Saturday Night Live in 2010, and she won an Emmy for that too. She's written seven books, including two autobiographies and three books about animals. She even played God on the short-lived Anne Heche sitcom Save Me and ended up on an episode of WWE Raw. In 2017 alone, she's had roles on both Bones and Freeform's Young and Hungry. Betty White has been a creator of indelible characters, a master of nearly every entertainment medium ever devised, and a pioneer breaking barriers for women in show business dating back to the 1950s. She's a champion for animal rights and a tireless worker for charities, even today at the age of 95. I mean, come on, who doesn't love Betty White? She's a true American treasure. The football parts of Blind Date are the funniest of the episode. It's one of the few episodes where Rose gets to be something other than completely naive about everything. Blanche facing her vanity by dating a man who can't see her doesn't come close to Rose being Bill Belichick before Bill Belichick was Bill Belichick. Next time on Golden Girl Sports, we hit the ice, the series' lone hockey reference, and talk about the tricky nature of sports fandom. Golden Girl Sports is written, produced, and narrated by Dan Saracini. The theme is Golden Sunrise, instrumental version, by Josh Woodward, and is available at freemusicarchive.org. Visit goldengirlsportspodcast.com for show notes and references, and follow us on Twitter at Golden Girls SP. Thanks for listening. <laughs>